Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Today's episode of The Audible is brought to you by Trader Joe's, national chain of neighborhood grocery stores where you can run a naked bootleg to score delicious food at great prices. From mac and cheese balls to mini balls of meat, you'll always end up with a touchdown. Learn more at TraderJoe's.com and at Trader Joe's on Instagram. Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. Bruce, I know I'm doing my best right now to sound very peppy, but that is not an indicator of my level of exha- of exhaustion at this moment. Stu, you make one road trip and all of a sudden now you're gassed. I do this every week. I know. Well, and I used to do it every week. When you don't travel that frequently, it really uh, it's really jarring. It really takes a toll on your body. But I will say. It's funny that we just had that conversation last week about covering games and seeing less football. I forgot when you cover a Notre Dame game and you stay in Chicago, that two hours there and back, especially a night game coming back, that is that is uh, your whole day. But I got to say, I don't know when the last time you went to a game at Notre Dame was. For me, it had been a long time. And the stadium is just completely different, and I was just blown away. Uh, that place is now... It was always cool. Don't get me wrong. Notre Dame Stadium is always a really cool and historic place to go. But now it's just a spectacular fan experience. Okay, so let's get on the field, Stu. Yeah. We, t- we talked a lot about USC and a little bit about Notre Dame last week. Oh, we talked a lot about both with, with our friend John Walters. But you were holding out hope on USC. You were high on their D-line. You were talking them up. And um, I had not been high on them and I feel a measure of, I don't say vindication, but they, they looked awful the other night. And, uh, so which do you think this was a bigger referendum on USC is a complete mess or Notre Dame is a challenger to Alabama to make a run at the national title this year? I mean, can the answer be both? It's, uh, when it's 49, 14, it's obviously an indictment of USC. And by the way, I, I, uh, I didn't know the full extent of USC's injuries on the defensive line when we were having that conversation last week. When I found out that a freshman was going to start a nose tackle, I had a feeling Notre Dame was going to run all over them, which they did. But it was more than that. You know, that is it. But it wasn't like they had, I mean, lots of teams have injuries this time. They have a lot of injuries, but that's still, you know, they looked, and, and, you know, after the game, I actually took the USC side of things, Matt Fortuna took the Notre Dame uh, angle. He went to, to them, to their interviews. I went to USC's. I can't really describe it. It was, I know that guys are going to come out and try to say the right things and put an optimistic spin on it, but they were surprisingly, well, let me just go back a few minutes to being down on the field at the end of the game. Guys are on the sideline laugh, not everybody, but a few guys laughing, smiling, and I'm like, guys, these are USC your, guys. These are USC guys. I'm like, you're getting your butts kicked on national TV. What's the deal here? 
Not everybody. There were definitely some guys looking pretty devastated. But after the game, coming out of the locker room, the way they were talking about it, they wanted to make it seem like, oh, just a, just a little bump in the road. You know, we'll go back. We'll get it fixed. And I'm thinking, you know, you've had eight games to get this fixed. The, the, these were a lot of the same problems they've had all year. Turnovers. Um, just, just, you know, like you said, the defense has not lived up to the potential. It's just that now they finally played a team that could truly take advantage of it. And so for I'm not the, even sure if it is the potential. I don't think this defense, I'm not sure where people got it that this was going to be a, tra- a typical USC defense when they're really good. I just don't see it. I went there in the spring and I saw it up close. And I, I didn't, when you say traditional USC, I'm not under any, it was never under any delusion. It would be like, there's, no Mike, there's no Mike Patterson there. So I don't think this is a crazy, I, I just think that, you know, really patchwork offensive line and not, not great personnel, good personnel, but not great on defense. And I just think it got exposed. Now the question is, how did they pick up the pieces here? All of a sudden now, by the way, we both got the, what I'm about to say, the next thing wrong. So they're going to play at US, at ASU next. We both kind of pooed <laughs> that, that upset. And they, they went just – Turns out they, they, they are clicking on defense. Their defense is playing spectacularly. So who so, are you picking? It? I mean, this isn't a game that's high on anybody's radar, but who are you picking USC at Arizona State this weekend? It would be very hard for me to pick USC after what I just saw. I mean, they look like a, a – a complete disaster on both sides of the ball. ASU is playing well. Now USC could just snap out of it this week. They're definitely the more talented team. But, you know, they're, they're two programs that seem to be, or two teams that seem to be going in completely different directions. And by the way, even if USC wins that game, I'm actually more worried for them the next week against Arizona because everything Brandon Wimbush did against uh, that defense, Khalil Tate can do in even more dangerous fashion. I, I think Khalil Tate's been phenomenal in October. I don't think his offensive line is quite at the level of Notre Dame. Notre Dame's offensive line is unbelievable. So let's talk about Notre Dame for a minute. Rarely do you see a team, and look, I said it all preseason that I thought they could be a surprise team just because while they went 4-8 last year, that was a, it was a lot of last-second losses or bad coaching decisions at the end of the game. And generally those teams that are better than their record often have a big improvement the next year. But this is more than that. This is Brian Kelly completely rebuilt his entire coaching staff and both sides of the ball and both coordinators brought a completely different style of play and it's working. You know, the offense, I said this in my story uh, Monday morning on the All-American, watching Wimbush and Josh Adams kind of do what they do, the up-tempo zone read reminds me a little bit of Oregon under Chip Kelly where you know what they're going to do and you still can't stop it. The offensive line is unbelievable. And the defense could not have been less, like they had no pass rush at all last year. Now they're this, with the same guys, they get after you. So tell me, so there's been pretty good buzz in coaching circles about Mike Elko. Did really well at, at pretty much everywhere he'd been, certainly at Wake Forest. Do you think that, Drew Tranquil is a really good player, by the way. He'd never been able to stay healthy, but now it seems like, you know, they've had some guys like that who are, on the field, who pops for you when you watch them? Dalen Hayes, for sure, and he's a guy who they, they, hyped, you know, they had a lot of yeah. hope for, but I just think he didn't have the experience yet you know, to do that last season. You know, uh, Greer Martini, one of their starting linebackers, was out, and Tavon Coney actually played one of the best games of any guy on that defense the other day. Jerry Tillery, obviously, has been there a while. Let me ask you, ask you a question, though. Okay, so Mike Elko 
is known, among other things, for producing these defenses that force a lot of turnovers. And and throughout the game, Saturday night, Mike Birch, Notre Dame's SID, was sitting right behind me. He would get on the, every time they, you know, they forced three turnovers, and each time they turned it into a touchdown, and each time he would get on the mic and update people that, okay, Notre Dame has now forced 17 turnovers and turned them into 13 touchdowns and a field goal, which is a pre- and very impressive. But here, here's what I want to ask you. So, you know, Brian Kelly talked about after the game that he does all these drills and they really emphasize taking the ball away. But the analytic people that do college football analytics, like Bill Connolly, they will tell you that turnovers are largely luck. Luke. Not Luke fluke, is. but whether you have a positive turnover margin or a negative turnover margin in a given year is is basically which side of the luck factor you're on that year because fumbles are generally considered 50-50 whether you recover them or not. Some years you're going to recover more than you lose, some years the other way around. And then obviously there are interceptions that are just great plays by the defense, but there are also interceptions where the ball gets tipped up into the air and bounces off somebody and ends up being an interception, you know, like you know, just just look at the three turnovers the other night. One of them was a muff punt snap or a muff punt return, right? That wasn't anything Notre Dame did. The guy just botched it. So so, I mean, how do you, where do you fall on this? Do you believe turnovers and forcing turnovers, because all the coaches preach it, is truly something you can coach? Or you can say all that stuff, but at the end of the day, it's luck. I think, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. I do think some of it is attitude and effort, whereas guys are you know, getting to loose balls, whereas guys are, are getting around the ball more, so they have opportunity to recover fumbles. I think there's a lot of times where, you know, a few a few years ago, David Gibbs, when he's the defense coordinator at Houston, like they were leading the country in that. And you'd have aggressive guys, and it becomes a, like kind of a feeding frenzy, a little bit mentality. Plus, I think the teams who turn it over, you know, sometimes you see players just either busting assignments, and I think it works the inverse. I mean, some of the turnovers Sam Darnold have have not been on him. Many of them haven't. He had sure. he had a fumble the week before where it was really Ronald Jones just kind of like didn't realize it was a live football. That really wasn't on Sam Darnold, but that's, you know, he's, I think he was charged with it. And so I think it's a combination. You can, you know, all these coaches emphasize drills and, you know, you can watch ball security drills and all that. I remembered I did a story this past off season after going to Ohio state and it was a drill Greg Schiano got from Bill Belichick. And that drill directly, they could show, help them win two games because it led to pick sixes, one against Oklahoma and one against Michigan, where it's this match the hand drill where it led to a deflection because the technique was, was taught well. Um, and Urban Meyer had told me I hated that drill when I first saw Shiano doing it at his individual station, but it works. And so I think there is... You know, I think, yeah, I think there's some luck factor into it. I think there's a lot of, there's some technique into it. And I think there's attitude. I think it, it's across the board. It's not one easy answer. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, first of all, regardless of the ability to take the ball away, obviously a defense that can get pressure on the quarterback continually, and Notre Dame does that, is probably going to have a better chance of forcing those turnovers. So there's certainly something to that. But what do you think about, this was, as I wrote, I mean, I couldn't remember the last time Notre Dame had a resounding victory like that. I feel like when I cover a, Notre Dame, a big Notre Dame game, oftentimes the other team is the one celebrating uh, you know, a big blowout statement victory over the Irish. So this was a huge moment for Notre Dame. They turn around this week, though, and they got to play NC State, who's a pretty good team. 
Are you worried at all about a letdown? I, it, it's possible. Like Notre Dame, uh, Notre Dame's going to face a much more talented defensive line this week than they did against USC. I mean, Bradley Chubb and those guys are can get after it. We'll see how how well Ryan Finley can play. You know, you're right. There is an emotional factor of staying up. You know, it's almost natural for college guys to to have a letdown after you blow out your arch rival in the biggest game they had this year. You know, I'm looking at Notre Dame. I think they are a serious playoff contender. So I want to ask you this hypothetical. If Notre Dame runs the table, they will be 11-1. and one. They have Their only loss is a one-point loss against a good Georgia team. If Georgia goes 12-1 and one and loses to Alabama in the SEC title game, what's going to happen? Are we going to have two SEC teams and Notre Dame in there? And, and, and we're going to have... Because I don't think TCU is going to make it through unscathed out of the Big 12. And I'm writing off at this point. I'm... I know you were pushing us on the Pac-12, but I think the Pac-12 is over. The Pac-12, I'm not saying over, but life support for the Pac-12's playoff hopes. It's tough to do with the scenario you just described. I mean, you don't know who's coming out of the Big Ten. Uh, you know, there's always, with this Penn State-Ohio State game this week, there's already the possibility that Ohio State wins, but Penn State ends up 11-1, and and Ohio State, you know, there's a lot of difference. It's too early, I think, to, to play that game entirely, but I will say this. The, the nightmare scenario for the selection committee and for Georgia fans would be Notre Dame 11-1, Georgia 12-1. Georgia fans will, of course, say, we beat them. There, how can well, that be at a their just, place? At, at their, their place. place. How can this be a question? But we saw with Ohio State-Penn State last year, it's more than the head-to-head. Same with Baylor-TCU. So Notre Dame, if, in your scenario, will have beaten... Uh, Michigan State, who's in the top 25 right now. I don't know if they'll stay there, but they are now. USC, I don't know. The way we're talking about them, maybe they don't stay in the top 25, but they could. NC State's in the top 25. They play at Miami, who's in the top 25. They play at Stanford. It's going to be a heck of a resume. And Georgia, on the other hand, they may end up being the only top 25 team. Yeah, I mean, Auburn is on the road. That's about it. Yeah. You know, Florida's not looking very good. Obviously, Tennessee looks like crap. They did... This other win that I'm going to point out now actually may may look a little better. They crushed Mississippi State 31 to three. Mississippi State could be the second best team in the SEC West. I mean, who knows what's going on there? I mean, the only people in the SEC West right now I don't feel you know are in contention for that title are Ole Miss and Arkansas. But you know, I don't know. That win could carry some weight at this point. Yeah, and I think that any talk about two SEC teams, the Georgia Alabama scenario. People have to understand those teams are not going to have great resumes in terms of just who they beat. The rest of the conference is so bad, but they've been so dominant. Alabama has been so dominant. Georgia, for the most part, has been so dominant that you, you know, know what's, cr- what's there is crazy? something to be said for for playing a bunch of good but maybe not great teams and dominating them. What's weird? I looking at the SEC. I looked at the SEC standings this morning. There are four different teams in the SEC that have yet to win a conference game that are all 0-4. Tennessee, Bandy, Mizzou, and Arkansas. You know, and you wouldn't think those teams would have been in the, you know, maybe Mizzou, but Tennessee has been a dud. Vandy has fallen apart, and Arkansas seems to just, you know, get out of neutral at this point. I think our guy Bielema is in trouble. Yeah. I don't I see that that's... team finishing better than 4-8. No, I, I mean, look, you could have as many as six different head coaches in the SEC next year. Yep, this is this is the scenario 
we thought might be in play before the season. Now, some guys have, like Kevin Sumlin, have done their best to I, coach I their way Kevin off Sumlin, the hot seat. He could be off the hot seat, but out of there, too. Just yeah. say, you know, I'm, I don't need to deal with, with – you guys didn't want me. You, the AD, you know, put me on blast on Paul Feinbaum's show. I don't – you know, I could do better than this. As you mentioned, Arkansas, Ole Miss, I don't think it's looking good for Matt Luke keeping that job. So that could be three. Auburn, who knows what's going on there. Tennessee with Butch Jones. And then the other one is – what happens if Dan Mullen looks to be upwardly mobile and tries to get out of there? I mean, that would be six. And that doesn't even include Mizzou. I think Barry Odom will they'll give him another year, but who knows? The other big win, or the other big game, Penn State-Michigan the other night. You probably saw a lot more of this game than I did. I'm were sure you, I did. <laughs> were you surprised that, not that Penn State won, but that their offense, that, that McSorley and Barkley could do all the things they did, against that Don Brown defense that, to that point, was leading the nation in total defense? I'm not. I'm actually not that surprised because I think they are that explosive. I mean, to me, Barkley's the best player in the country, and you saw reasons why that. And they do a lot of things. I mean, credit to Joe Moorhead. They outcoached Michigan and Don Brown on Saturday night. They had some wrinkles, got them on their heels right away. And then they, you know, Trace McSorley – just he's really aggressive he he's a really good fit for that system they throw up 50 50 balls because they have big athletic receivers it's not just mike gusicki and we saw that and they're really really good on offense and i think they're pretty underrated on defense we we'll find out more this week against ohio state because i just think the michigan offense is kind of a mess right now but uh i thought they were gonna handle their business this week and then i think they're going to be in trouble this weekend when they have to go to Columbus because it's a similar scenario. Now they're the team that's going up against somebody who's at the bye week and looking for revenge, and you got to go on the road. I just think it's a tall ask for Penn State to do this back-to-back weeks. It is, and I, I, I thought it was interesting when they said after the game that stuff like the Wildcat play with, you know, right off the bat with Barkley, a couple other wrinkles, they basically – held that, you know, held that back the first half of the season, knowing this stretch was coming. And it worked. Michigan had no idea that was coming. Now Ohio State will have seen that on tape, but there could be more things, obviously, that Joe Moorhead has in store. But does now will this qualify? Let's say Penn State, after looking so impressive against Michigan, goes and lays an egg at Ohio State. Will that qualify for you as a body blow game? No, I just think it'll qualify against going up against a really talented team on the road that had an right. extra week to play. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's a, a Michigan factor. I will know. say I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Seven point favorite. I'll be picking the Buckeyes at home, but that's basically the main reason that they're at home. We haven't to this point, you know, we've seen JT Barrett put up great numbers against a bunch of bad teams. We, we really don't know how good Ohio State is. In fact. They people don't really talk about this, but you know the secondary is not what it has been the last couple of years. So if if McSorley has time to throw, which you never know with that uh, or that Ohio State defense, you know there are some opportunities there. So I so if I'm a, if I'm thinking about why should I pick Penn State, it's going to be something like that. I think their offense will, will be really good. I think that they'll pressure JT Barrett and he'll look like he did against Oklahoma. And if I'm picking Ohio State to win, the main reason is they're rested and at home. So. I'm saying I don't really have football reasons to pick Ohio State. I just feel like they've been waiting for this game for a year, and it's hard for them to imagine them losing a second big game at home this year. Yeah, I'm I'm with you for for some of that, and uh, 
you know, we'll see, we'll see what's going to happen with the Big Ten. The team I saw this past weekend has the easiest path to go through the regular season unscathed, and that's Wisconsin. I think they're good. It's funny. When I watched them, you know, in person, I had just had back-to-back weeks at TCU, and I'm trying – like, in my head, I can make that comparison. I feel like TCU – Wisconsin might be a little better, but it's hard for me to put them in front of TCU because TCU went to Stillwater and beat Oklahoma State, and they beat a West Virginia team that I think is pretty good. They, You know, whereas Wisconsin – uh, they haven't beaten really anybody. And it certainly doesn't help their cause that Iowa now has three losses. So there's really not going to be anybody. And Michigan looked looked awful. So Wisconsin may go the entire regular season without playing, without beating, without even playing a ranked team. Right. Which, you know, you remember Iowa two years ago and nobody thought they were any good, even though they were 12-0. and 0. But Iowa had at least, I believe, beaten two ranked teams. Wisconsin's not going to play any. I, this was the the focus of my forward pass column on the All-American on Monday morning, the incredible imbalance in the Big Ten ever since they went to the geographic divisions. It's just, uh, right now, it's, it's Wisconsin is in first in the West, two games ahead of the two second-place teams who are Nebraska, who's 3-4 and four overall, and Northwestern, who's not that good, and they've beaten both those teams already. So it's they're just kind of waltzing through the season not many people are seeing them play. Not many people realize just how good Jonathan Taylor is. I think they're probably better than that Iowa team two years ago, but I have no idea how good they are. You saw them up close. Do you think they are Ohio State, Penn State level? I don't. I think they could be as good as as those teams on, you know, I don't know. I think Ohio State has the most potential on defense because I think they have the best personnel in the front seven. I don't think Wisconsin has that, but Wisconsin, I'll tell you this, uh, Wisconsin has very good cornerbacks. That impressed me this weekend. You know, they were without, so Jack Sitchie's done for the year. We know that. And then his backup was knocked out of the game early on. And so they had a third string guy go in there and, and made a bunch of plays. I mean, they're pretty, they're pretty good. They're really sound on defense. When you talk to people who played them, they just said they do more and are more sound than anybody you see. And so that, you know, that's a that's a good thing for people to say about them. I think Alex Hornerbrook's pretty good. The what what is hurting them and literally is hurting them is they only had three healthy scholarship receivers this weekend. But what they did have was Troy Fumagalli, who's a very good tight end. He was back and Maryland had no answer for him. Also um, you know, as of my first time around Jonathan Taylor Really impressive kid, both on and off the field. You meet him, and he has got he you know his parents did a good job with him. I'll say that because he is just a very mature, very engaging kid with a ton of personality. Didn't know this, but I asked him. I said, "Where would you have gone if not for Wisconsin?" He was like, "I probably would have gone to Harvard." Wow, you know. And then I texted some Harvard coaches. They were like, "Yeah, he was the top guy on our board. He visited us three times." I was like, can you imagine what he would have done to the Ivy League if he played there? By the way, the best freshman in college football was only a three-star guy in high school. The Badgers love those three-star guys. He's having a great season. He's number three in the country in rushing. He's averaging 7.5 yards per carry, not too shabby. Are you like me and have four or five Heisman guys running backs? Well, as we've discussed, we only do three at the All-American. But let me think about that for a second. Yes, because the only quarterback I would have in the top five would be Baker Mayfield. And then the others would be Love, Barkley, 
Adams and Taylor. Your number one guy now, I assume, is Barkley after this weekend. No, it's still love. Man, you got some serious, serious NorCal bias going for you still. Yeah, it's either that or the ten point three yards per carry. <laughs> I mean, the guy's just having a phenomenal season. So, uh, but Barkley is a great player. But I mean, I don't know how anybody could look at the numbers and not say loves having a better season. Well, one guy leads the leads the nation in all-purpose yards, um, and that's Barkley. He's a much better receiver out of the backfield. He's a really good blocker, and I don't know. Look what he just did against Michigan. He's incredible. I your guy has not seen any defense that was ranked anywhere near what Michigan was. That I is guess. correct. Let's shift gears a little bit. This is a story that's kind of underneath the the other two a little bit and kind of flew under my radar for most of the day. I don't know what's going on at Florida State. Obviously, they are only won two games. They lost again this time to Louisville. Uh, it shocks me that anybody would, would talk about Jimbo Fisher and buyout or anything about his own job security. But here we are. He had a little bit of an incident with a fan who, it's uh, you know, depending on your interpretation, it sounded like Jimbo Fisher kind of challenged him to come closer and basically say it to my face. He said, walk your ass down here and say it. Yeah. You know, look, I don't, I'm not saying I, you know, think what he said was the right thing. And I don't think Jimbo Fisher, you know, in hindsight would agree with that either, but it's just kind of crazy to me that all of a sudden that, you know, this is the, this is the way things have gone. It's the 180 in, in the state of Florida right now is pretty surreal because you have three of the eight undefeated teams are in the state. Miami's undefeated. Obviously, that's their, one of their arch rivals. Uh, UCF and USF, and here's Florida State. They may not make a bowl game for like the first time in like 40 years. The Florida State-Florida game could be for w- maybe one gets bowl eligible and the other doesn't. If you were talking to Florida State fans, what would you tell them? I would tell them to have a little bit of perspective. But, you know, that's the beauty of being on the outside, right? We can keep perspective more so than... When you're a rabid fan, I mean, no question, they're a disappointing team. When DeAndre Francois went down at the against Alabama, at that exact moment, and when I realized like how serious it was, and that James Blackman was the best available answer, I figured they would struggle. I didn't think they'd be two and four, but I figured they would struggle. But it's easy for you and I to say, "Hey, guys, Jimbo Fisher led you a national title. He's had a great run overall. Give the guy the benefit of the doubt." When you're a fan of the team and you have the expectations that Florida State has. It's just, this is just so unacceptable to them. And um, I think some of the fans felt like he should have made some coaching staff changes after last season, and he didn't. So that's become the thing. Nobody's trying to run Jimbo Fisher out of Tallahassee. They just really want him to fire people. And that's what this fan um, interaction was about. The fan was saying, new coaches, new coaches. And he got into it with him. And by the way, on Monday morning at his press conference, he stood by it. He did not apologize for getting into it. He said that he um, does not regret getting into it with the fan. No, not one bit. So he's like, I think Jimbo is taking the standpoint of like, hey, show me a little respect here. Well, look what I, well, I, I've earned it. You know, I've earned a little bit of faith here, it seems to be. Because off, honestly, you would think the coach gets into it with a fan. He would want to walk that back. But he's saying, no, I don't regret it at all. Well, Jimbo has earned the faith. I'm sorry. I mean, you know. Here's the thing that's kind of been a, a disappointment to me. I get the offense struggling when you have a true freshman quarterback. Their defense has been pretty average. They're they're ranked 45th in the country with a lot of, you know, Derwin James is back. They got a lot of, a lot of talent on the D-line. Uh, they're ranked lower on defense than Oregon. Who would have thought, who would have seen that coming? 
in, you know, I would not see that coming in either direction. I think people felt like, you know, Derwin James is back. It's a very talented and experienced defense. They, I think people thought they'd be one of the best defenses in the country. Frankly, they, they played very well against Alabama in that first game. It's not like Alabama had a huge day on offense that day, like they've had almost against almost everybody they've played since then. But, you know, Charles Kelly is one of the people, the, the defensive coordinator, who you would think would be very highly regarded there. People want him his job. You know, it's it's across the board. And uh, frankly, a little out of whack, I think, with the extent of what's going on there. This is not Oregon last season. This is not Michigan State last season. I don't think. I mean, maybe they will. Maybe they'll end up going. They don't have the 12th game, so maybe they'll end up going 4-7. and seven, And everybody will freak out. But I don't know. I don't look at it as a broken program. Do you? No. No by any means. I mean, look, they've had... I think every game they've had has been decided by seven points or less, except for the loss to Alabama. They lost by six to NC State. They're pretty good. They won by seven at Wake Forest. They lost by four to Miami, won by seven at Duke, and then just lost by three against the Louisville team that, you know, it's not a, no shame to give up 450 yards of offense to Lamar Jackson's team. So, you know, I, th- I think you. You know what? When when things are kind of going bad, some of these things magnify a little bit. But uh, I would just say, you know, Florida State fans, be be happy you got. Uh, this is going to sound like the whole Herb Street Washington thing, but you know, be happy you have Jimbo Fisher because probably a hundred and hundred other schools would love to have him, and a couple of schools with big big paychecks. <laughs> LSU LSU sure wanted him. I wonder if he wishes he he'd taken that offer. Hey, look, I wouldn't be surprised if Scott Woodward at Texas A and M will will throw a. a you know, $9 million at Jimbo now or something. So look, as you've said, there are a lot of schools doing very well in Florida this year, not named Florida or Florida state. most notable USF with, with Charlie strong and UCF with, um, Scott Scott Frost and Miami's undefeated as well. But do you know who is undefeated in conference USA in first place in their division? Can I take a guess? Well, there's not many choices left. Sure. Go ahead. Does he like attention? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Did he? Did he? Did he have over 800 yards? Yeah, offense? I'm talking about Lane Kiffin's FAU Owls, who on Saturday against North Texas, who by the way is one of the better teams in that conference, put up 804 yards of offense. FAU is three and zero in Conference USA, and just they are racking up big offensive numbers. Well, that was clearly the biggest yet. They have uh, just to put it in perspective, they have run for. 100 yards in seven of the last eight quarters that they have played. Um, very Navy-esque, if you will. Uh, throwing the ball, too. So I did talk to Lane on Sunday. Um, I can't say that I've seen them play. I'm sure you haven't either. But he described it I, I actually at, watched the Navy game. The Navy game. Oh, yeah? To see, yeah. But that was, that was what, the first game, early, right? Uh, yeah, it was early. It was also... You know, Navy is a, Navy's a good team. I mean, they're better than a lot of these teams. Are yeah, they now, looked. So. They, they, and they lost to Wisconsin as well. And the teams they're, they're beating up on now aren't those teams. But, I mean, they beat Middle Tennessee pretty badly. Middle Tennessee beat Syracuse. It sounds like things changed a lot after the first couple of games and that they are now. So he hired Kendall Bryles from Baylor. And Kendall but Bryles. Is this, but is this the Baylor offense? As no. We, no. Okay. I think that's what was the intention to start out. But with more time, it's become the Baylor tempo mixed with the Lane Kiffin Alabama offense. So two tight end formations, um, a lot of pre-snap motion, um, 
the QB is doing a lot of the QB run stuff that Jalen Hurts did. The way he put it was problem plays. They like to do a lot of problem plays. They give the defense problems. So here's my question to you. Let's say they just keep doing this, racking up numbers. They end up either winning Conference USA or winning eight or nine games. Does that accelerate the timetable for Lane Kiffin's next Power 5 job? It, it would, but I don't think it would it would get him a Power 5 job after this year. I just don't think anybody is going to throw him the keys after he goes 9-3 and three or, or even 10-3. and three. I mean, at the same time he's doing this, he's still doing all of his fun, cocky stuff on Twitter where he was last week leading up to the Tennessee-Alabama game. He First, he started following a th- – there was a Twitter account that's pushing for Lane Kiffin to come back to Tennessee. He started following that account. That was pointed out. And then he started retweeting Tennessee fans who are pushing for him to come back. Lane Kiffin, I, I think, is in on a lot of these jokes, by the way. Oh, yeah. He, ha- he has a good time with it. I think the question is going to be if you're an AD – what are you going to be comfortable with? Because FIU probably is desperate for the attention and he has done a nice job with them on the field. They're winning. But, you know, what are these jobs that are going to come open where you're going to go, oh, okay, I could see Lane there. You know, I don't see him like at an Oregon State. I don't see any of these SEC schools. I mean, do you really think Greg Sankey wants anyone to hire Lane Kiffin back? No, no, I, I, he's not going to happen. Uh, he may never get another Power 5 job. Just because people are uncomfortable with, I mean, um, if you if you're Illinois and Lovey and and the the I think the clock is going to wind down on Lovey Smith's tenure there at this off season. Really, that um, quickly, huh? I would not be surprised if that was a change. How many coaches made. can Illinois go through in that short amount of time? Apparently, not enough. But I I could see a change there possibly, and but just. Would Lane be the guy? I mean, I, I don't see that happening. I just don't see a power five. I think Lane would need a couple more years for people to kind of be a little more confident of, okay, this is going to be worth the risk for me. Sure. Just just worth paying attention to going forward. But Stu, I think you're right. Stu, do you want to do the mailbag or do you want to do our shout out of the week? Bruce is referring to your emails at the audiblepod at gmail.com, which obviously we're not answering nearly as much as we should anymore because we're only going once a week right now for travel and schedule reasons. But I do have some I want to get to today. But yes, first, why don't you give your shout out? All right. My shout out is going to be to another coach who's come blast from the past. That's Jeff Tedford, Stu, at F Fresno State. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. They are five and two. They just crushed San Diego State, which had been a top 25 team. Uh, their two losses are at Alabama and at Washington. No shame in either one of those. Jeff Tedford, remember the old Cal coach, he has won as many games in basically half a season as Fresno as the Bulldogs won in the previous two years combined. Shout out Jeff Tedford. What's Jeff Tedford's secret? Because when he got to Cal, and this was a long time ago now, it was the same thing. They'd been bad for a long time, and he had Kyle Bowler, and he came in, and they started winning right away. Jeff Tedford is a, a really, really sharp offensive mind. I think his secret more than anything is I'm going to control what I can control. And I think a, he had some staffing issues where I think it got sideways a little bit. I think things got stale. And I think right now I think he's been refocused, if anything like that. And, you know, I had, their AD, Jim Barco, he, had been a, he was one of the guys behind the Joey Harrington billboard 
at Oregon. He's an Oregon guy. He was like really tight with Phil Knight. I talked to him before the year and he was dead set. Sure. Oh yeah. We're going to start winning right now. It was almost like, it, it, like after I got the phone with him, I was like, he's basically telling me they're going to go like nine and three. I was like, they won one game last year. And he was that confident in what Tedford does. So, you know, he's going to make a serious run at coach of the year honors with, uh, our loyal audible listener, Matt Campbell, who had another big one in Iowa state. Um, but I, I think that what he's done is just, it's pretty remarkable given how bad they were last year. My shout out goes to a coach whose team sure looked like it was going to be really bad this year. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, the last two weeks has come on and no, I'm not talking about Todd Graham, although he easily could be Steve Adazio at BC. This is a program that has struggled on offense seemingly the entire time he's been there, although I guess it's really been the last couple of years. And they were off to a 2-4 and four start this year, and it sure looked like his job was in jeopardy. And then over the last two weeks, they won 45-42 at Louisville and 41-10 at Virginia, who had been having a very good year. It's the first time since 2002 that BC has scored 40 points in back-to-back games. Where on earth did this come from? Uh, I think it came from he's got some freshmen in the backfield. He's got a yeah. freshman quarterback who's playing well and a freshman running back who is who has been as advertised. So let's see if they can keep it going. I don't think he's off the hot seat yet but because um, they have a new AD there. But it's definitely surprising to see how explosive they've well, been on offense. Not off the hot seat, but they've got a big one this Friday night. A team we were just talking about earlier, Florida State, is coming to BC Friday night. I would say both teams really, really need that win. I'm curious what the point spread would have been two months ago and what the point spread is going to be, you know, two days from now and how much of a change it is. I might be able to answer that question for you. Okay. I'm sure if you can't, I'm sure some of our loyal listeners will be able to. Uh, well, I can't tell you, I can't say what it was at the beginning of the season if, it, if there even was such a thing, but it is, it opened at four and a half, Florida State minus four and a half and is down to minus three. I'm guessing it was probably at least ten. It would have been at least ten points more than that. At least, uh, probably. You saying before the season? I would guess yes. Florida State would have been a three touchdown favorite. Yeah, but that was a long time ago. All right, you can always send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail dot com. Carrick Thomas, the subject of this email is: Will Bama struggle next year? Love having the audible back. Miss having it twice weekly. So do we. We'll try to do that for you in the offseason. I know that Bama is used to reloading, but have you looked at what they are possibly losing this year, especially on defense? The top six defensive backs will probably be gone. Fitzpatrick, Harrison, Wallace, Averett, Brown, and Jones. Everybody who plays for them. Both inside linebackers, Evans and Hamilton, plus Payne will probably leave early, too. On offense, all three starting wideouts, the starting center, and the top two running backs might leave as well. Can a team rebounding from losing that many guys from William Thomas in the... Oh, his name's William Thomas in the Bronx. I don't feel... I don't feel that way. You know, look, you'll have Jonah Williams to anchor the offensive line. They have some really good younger linemen in the pipeline. Henry Ruggs looked pretty pretty good the other day. He's a freshman. Jerry Judy's a freshman. You know, they're going to have both quarterbacks back. I just think that they are they they are so loaded. You know, when you look through the through the roster of guys, I mean, I still think they're really really good. You know, will they go undefeated? Probably not. Or maybe not because you know sooner or later is going to be a little dip, but I wouldn't I wouldn't write them off because there's still so many freshmen and sophomores who are really talented who are who are playing now. 
One day, Bruce, Alabama will go eight and four. It'll happen. I yeah, don't know look, if it'll be Saban's, next year or not. It'll happen. Saban's not gonna not gonna be in his sixties forever. On the way into the game in Notre Dame the other day, I was talking to Matt Fortuna, my colleague, who is much younger than us, class of 2011 at Penn State, about covering games at the Orange Bowl back in the day. And I was, you know, it was hard for him to comprehend. Like he's like, "Why are you going to Miami so often?" I'm like, "Because when I started out." It was Miami, it was Ed Reed, it was Jonathan Vilma, it was those teams, Willis McGahee. They were so, so good. And if you had said in 2002, you would assume Miami was going to keep winning at that level forever. You, in 2008, you would have thought USC was going to keep winning at that level forever. And right now, it may feel like this Alabama thing's going to go on forever, but it won't. That is a lot of guys to uh, replace next year, but we've seen them do it before. Yeah, sooner or later it happens. By the way, a quick thing. So in our meetings with Jim Leonard, the Wisconsin defense coordinator, told them like a pretty, I don't know if I would say it's an amazing story, but he was talking about all the people he learned from. And then he said, you know, it kind of changed when he went to Baltimore and it was around Ed Reed. And just it's almost the stuff that Ed Reed knows and processes on the fly. It was very interesting to hear him kind of talk about it. It was stuff I can't really encapsulate in, in two minutes. One of the best so, that ever, would you say one of the best that ever played that position? Yeah, I mean, he'll be a Hall of Famer. I mean, I would argue he's as good a player as Miami's ever had because of the leadership side, but just like a football genius in terms of how he sees things. And obviously Jim Leonard was a great player at Wisconsin, a long-time NFL player. who's was kind of like articulating that a little bit uh, on his own level. So That 2001 Miami team that many people think is, is the greatest of all time, as dominant as they were in every game, every other game, for some reason, the one I always remember is that BC game where they almost lost, and and they sealed it on a fumble return. Was it Matt, Matt Walters, Walters had it? And, Matt Walters and, had it. And Ed Reed came up behind him and was away. basically like, "Give me the ball. <laughs> I'm going to be the one that runs with it the rest of the way." Uh, and he ran it back for a touchdown. I always remember that play. We should. Uh, we probably have a lot of younger listeners at this point. You know, we're both in our 40s now. We'll have to do, like, story time with Stu and Bruce. <laughs> Back in our day, when, uh, in fact, I even told Matt, like, you know, now you complain if, like, the Wi-Fi is not working well at the stadium. But I remember when I first started out, and a writer who I will not name was freaking out on the Sugar Bowl PR guy because there weren't enough phone lines to file your send your stories. Let me guess. Dennis Dodd threatened to stuff a coupler up somebody's ass. <laughs> it, was, it was not Dennis Dodd, but it was, uh, you know, there weren't enough phones. Like they would, you give me initials. Back in the day, you would have, you would, you know, go to Press Row and there'd be a certain number of landline phones sitting there because that's what you used to file your stories at the end of the game. Mike Didana, hey guys, why is Ohio State getting credit for the improved passing game? Who have they beaten since Oklahoma? Maryland looks like the best win. Maybe we should see how it looks when they have to pass to win, like against Penn State or Michigan. He, I think Mike's right. I mean, the stat, JT Barrett, 21 touchdowns, one INT. Uh, by the same token, we get some advanced metric stuff as part of our broadcasts. And JT Barrett's numbers downfield are still pretty suspect. I mean, it's like, you know, anything near 50% downfield is really good. But JT is like, his are pretty much the same as most quarterbacks who are kind of in the average of, you know, 15-20%. In the Nebraska game, that's probably the, Ohio, the the recent Ohio State game I watched the most. Everybody was open, so he basically just sit, sit, stood there and just decided, okay, I'm going to 
throw to this guy. Now. I'm going to throw to this guy. Now. Who, which open receiver am I going to throw to on this play? That's obviously not going to be the case against Penn State. But I don't know. I think if you, it's one thing to do that one week or two weeks. When you're doing that every single week, something's going right. Yeah, well, we're going to find out a lot more this weekend. So. Bruce, it has been way too long since we heard from Jason Garlewski in Columbia, South Carolina. He said, Bruce and Stewart, great podcast as always. I've been looking at the Big 12 schedules, and I like TCU to make the Big 12 title game. Is TCU for real, or will they fade down the stretch? They've got a tough one this week at Iowa State. I think they're for real because they're more physical on defense than they've been. They have two really good running backs. They have receivers who are good, and Kenny Hill is playing with a lot more confidence. By the way, I think Sonny Cumbie has done a really nice job. You know, one voice in, in, in Kenny Hill's ear, and they're doing a lot of things that, that make him comfortable, and they've had enough wrinkles to keep people honest. I don't think that, uh, you know, Oklahoma, to me, is an interesting one for them when they play just because I think Baker Mayfield is the best player on the field at that point. But... TCU should be in every game. I mean, to, to beat Oklahoma State on the road with the firepower Oklahoma State has, I mean, Gary Patterson's really good when it comes to finding ways to to kind of slow somebody down, and we'll see what he could what he can do. I mean, you're, you're right. Oklahoma, the way Iowa State is playing, this game is way more interesting now. I mean, two months ago, talk about the Florida State-BC game. Two months ago, this game wouldn't have been on anybody's radar. But now, Iowa State 5-2 and two in the top 25. TCU, obviously... You know, in the top five, uh, this is this is one to keep an eye on. It's a tough road, but you know, look, they it's this late in the season, and they're the only undefeated one left. So they they've got a leg up to just to if he's saying to get to the Big Twelve title game, not necessarily win it. It's going to be this. Whatever happens, this is going to be so interesting. This whole idea that like whoever finishes in the top two in the Big Twelve are going to play each other again at the end of the year. It's we've never seen anything like it. It's I know it'd be very Big Twelve esque to blow up in their face, but we'll see. Maybe, maybe it goes the opposite. Maybe it vaults somebody into the playoff. David Sharp from Chicago, Illinois, on the subject of buyouts, which we've talked about a lot on here recently. He says it's odd how coaches don't seem to be bothered by the buyout if they want to leave. They sign somewhere else and then get together with their lawyers and either argue why they shouldn't have to pay it or try to negotiate something different than what they signed up for, and even go to court sometimes. Rich Rodriguez leaving West Virginia, Jim McElwain leaving Colorado State, and an Oklahoma assistant. Oklahoma State assistant that went to Texas. I would say that one got pretty ugly. Joe Wickline. Yeah, that went to court, didn't it? Yeah. Are several that come to mind. Why do coaches seem to fare better than the schools on the buyouts? It's a good question. It depends on, on where it is. Obviously, uh, your buddy Mike Leach hasn't fared so well when it came to, to getting his money out of, out of Texas Tech. So I think it's... I don't know. I'm not a lawyer to know how these things play out. And I think that the way the agents set things up, I think the agents are probably better at negotiating typically than the ADs and the schools are. I think it's because if a guy doesn't want to be there anymore, what are you going to do? Like, you know, there's, there's, there's incentive on both sides to just get that done. And I have it hanging over your school. I remember the rich, one rich Rodriguez left West Virginia. That was ugly. It went on for months mm-hmm. and it was really kind of the first of many clouds that really helped him get off to a really rough start there, even before they had that disastrous season. So it's in both parties, best interest to work something else and move on with it. Whereas if the coach, it's a matter of firing the coach, uh, there's absolutely no incentive for the coach to take a lesser buyout. Unless apparently you're Gary Anderson, um, which I think is going to be the subject of our last 
question, which okay. is... And we didn't weigh in on this the other day because of our timing issue. Yeah, so here's our chance. Scott Zelk... Why do we have so many names that are hard to pronounce this week? <laughs> Scott Zel- Zuelke, Z-U-E-L-K-E. Write in and correct me, Scott. Stu and Bruce, Gary Anderson, and Oregon State mutually agreed to part ways on October 9th. There have been a lot of kudos thrown Anderson's way because he agreed not to make Oregon State pay him. The, no. Yeah, I, maybe this was sent before the text messages came out. I even, I, you know what? Text messages are not. No, uh, no kudos from me on that. If you quit, why should OSU owe you anything? It's not the first time that Eric Anderson has quit on a program. He quit Wisconsin because he felt higher academic standards wouldn't allow him to get the players he wanted. I know you both took exception to Steve Spurrier quitting midseason two years ago at South Carolina. At least he retired. I'm skeptical Anderson is retiring. Saying why the why the double standard? Didn't he just quit? No, I'm with you, Scott. I was with you two weeks ago on it too. I think you know coaches preach all the time: finish, finish, finish. Midseason, he bails because it wasn't getting turned around enough. You hired the assistants; that's on you. Uh, if you didn't like what they were delivering or any of that stuff, and you bailed on the players, you bailed on your staff. I'm a, I agree with Scott. I, I mean, look, we, we both said Steve Spurrier, as he said, you know, we thought he quit on, on when South Carolina, when it wasn't when it looked like it was too tough. I mean, if a player ever said, yeah, coach, I don't want to play against Alabama this week. They're killing everybody. You know, how would that play? Um, so I'm, you know, Scott's exactly right. I, that's a perspective I have. I don't, I think the reason why some people, and I, I didn't read enough of these columns to say, you know, credit him to say, because he was giving back the money. You know, he didn't give back the money. I mean, is he giving back all the money he got from Oregon State from the time he got there? I mean, I, I I'm not asking him to do that, but I'm just saying, like, he, he didn't finish the job. He didn't even try to finish the job. Yeah, I mean, look, I was I think I was about the most critical there was at Spurrier at quitting midseason, so I would be hypocritical if I didn't say the same thing about Gary Anderson. I think he handled that about as poorly as possible. And um, is he retiring? No, but I don't think he's going to get another head coaching job. No, and I think it'd be a challenge for somebody to say, "Hey, we're gonna, we're gonna," especially, you know, if you're doing it in college, where I feel like that it's a less mercenary, less mercenary. I'm not saying it doesn't exist because we can see how the recruiting world works, but less mercenary world than than the NFL is. So remember last year, a story, a recurring storyline on this podcast was the roofers at your house. Okay. Well, as of this, just now. Today begins the remodeling of our kitchen, which could be a long, long process. So should make for some interesting podcasts. Yeah, what are you warning us? If you hear a lot of hammering or... Okay. No, that's actually, I, I will find a place to do it that's quiet. It'll be fine. But you went through your thing. I don't, this is about to begin four to six weeks, allegedly. Could be more, I know of disruption so wish us well and as always if you have questions for the audible send them to the audible pod at gmail.com roll those closing credits if you enjoy the audible please subscribe on apple podcasts google play stitcher or wherever you get podcasts if you enjoy college football podcasts also subscribe to the all-american podcast with nicole auerbach max olson and Chantel jennings our producer is nick fink Our intro song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. Download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow Bruce on Twitter at Bruce Feldman CFB. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel. And 
subscribe to The All-American if you haven't done so already at theathletic.com slash all-american. So come on, get over here.